right, well, we are continuing in Hosea. We're in Hosea chapter 2. And yes, we are going to do the entire chapter this morning. So we're not going to be able to hit every single word of every single verse, but we're going to come close, Lord willing. Okay? All right, who remembers last week? Anybody? Anybody remember the name of the three kids? Low Ruhama? Jezreel? Lo Ami? No compassion? Not my people? And Jezreel. And Jezreel was a reminder of the bloodshed of Jehu, who went and killed not only the northern king, who he was told to kill, but he also killed the southern king, who he was told not to kill. And these three children are the children of Hosea, and Hosea's wife, her name is? Gomer. And Gomer, before she met Hosea, was a very faithful, devout young lady, correct? No, she was not. She was unfaithful. Uh, she is referred to as a harlot in Hosea chapter 1. She was sexually immoral. This was the command of God. You are to go and find an immoral woman. You are to marry her. And this marriage was arranged by God for what reason? It's a metaphor. What is it a metaphor of? Yes, Israel's relationship with God. Israel is Gomer. She is unfaithful. She is engaged in harlotry. She is chasing after other gods. And the picture of Hosea and Gomer is supposed to be a picture of Yahweh and Israel. Yahweh is the faithful husband who loves Israel, who cares for her, who provides for her. And that love and care is returned with unfaithfulness, dishonesty, and adultery. That's the picture. And then at the end of chapter 1... Hosea makes this unbelievable change. You get down to verse 10 and you think, surely God is done with Israel. Hosea is done with Gomer. And yet you get down to verse 10 and God renews his promise to Abraham and says, I will still make you like the sand of the sea. You will still be a great nation. I will still have mercy on you. I will still have compassion on you. He even promises a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant in verse 11. The sons of Judah and the sons of Israel, remember Judah is the southern kingdom, Israel is the northern kingdom, they will be united into one kingdom, they will have one king, one ruler over them. This is the promise of the Davidic covenant. Despite their unfaithfulness, despite their idolatry, God is going to be faithful to the nation of Israel. He goes back to the valley of Jezreel and he says, where you sinned, where you were called not my people, you will now be called the sons of the living God. And that mercy and compassion is demonstrated again here in chapter 2. Look at verse 1. He says, say to your brothers, Ami, and to your sisters, Ruhamah. Anybody notice anything about that? Ami and Ruhamah. What are those? Ami is my people. Compassion. Yeah. Ruhama is compassion, mercy. Ami means my people. These are two of the children. 
and he's changed their names. They went from not my children and no mercy, no compassion. And he says, there will come a day where you will look to one another and you will say, Ruhama, you are a recipient of compassion. You are my people. And so he ties chapter 2 with chapter 1. But this also provides the introduction for chapter 2. Because now in the very next verse, he's going to tell them something else. And he's going to begin his indictment of the nation of Israel. He's going to give an explanation of their relationship with Yahweh. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. Contend with your mother, contend. For she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. And let her put away her harlotry from her face, and her adultery from between her breasts. This is the first point on your handout, by the way. There are handouts. If you don't have them, they're out there. Um, first point on your handout. Yahweh's message to the people. Yahweh's message to the people. God is going to use Hosea's children to bring this charge against their mother. You know that old saying, out of the mouth of babes? If your children come to you and confront you about your sin, it's even worse. It, it hurts more. The children here represent the people of Israel. The mother here represents the spiritual and uh, political leaders of Israel. And so he tells them, go to your leadership, contend with them. Plead with them. Strive with them. This is actually the term contend is a legal term. It's used to refer to a courtroom indictment, bringing an argument in court. If you go over to chapter 4, verse 1, Hosea 4, 1, he says, Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel, for the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land. This is the same word he uses there. Uh, Hosea chapter 12, verse 2. The Lord also has a dispute with Judah. That's talking about the southern kingdom, but he, he uses the same word. Do you hear the legal sense of that term? It's to bring a charge, make a case against Gomer, Hosea's wife, and it's also a case against Israel itself. That's the metaphor. So why, does he need, why do they need to contend with their mother? What is the case that they need to bring against their mother? Look again at verse 2. He says, For she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. The end of when he says this, I well, let me I'm getting ahead of myself. He's not saying that he's divorced her. He's not saying the relationship is over. Just so we understand. The end of chapter one makes it clear God's not finished with the nation of Israel. But they are to bring this indictment. And when he tells the children of Israel, contend with your mother, what he's essentially saying is, indict yourselves. Bring a charge against yourselves and be honest about what you've been doing. And what's the goal? 
restoration. He says, and let her put away her harlotry from her face, get it out from before you, and her adultery from between her breasts. He uses very descriptive language. Stop going to these other lovers. Stop doing what you're doing. Go after your husband. Her children are to plead with her to repent, to turn from her sin, to go back to her husband. What happens if she fails to do that? What happens if Hosea, or excuse me, if Gomer or the nation of Israel says, no, we like our other lovers, we like our other gods, we're going to stick with them? Verse 3, or I will strip her naked and expose her as on the day when she was born. I will make her like a wilderness, make her like desert land, and slay her with thirst. God's going to expose her. Or if you use the, the metaphor, Hosea is going to expose her to everyone. Everyone will see what an unfaithful bride she has been. Israel will be exposed before the world. There will be nothing to cover her, nothing to hide her. In the second part of that, God promises to make Israel like an arid desert, a dry, parched land. It won't be fruitful. They won't have streams of living water. This likely refers back to their time in the wilderness, where God just left them in the wilderness wandering for 40 years. No food, no water. And you think, well, this is just a punishment on Gomer. Gomer's the one who's been unfaithful. Gomer's the one who's been involved in the adultery. But it's not just Gomer who faces judgment. It's the children. Verse 4. Also, I will have no compassion on her children, because they are children of harlotry. The children have been just as much engaged in this, the people of Israel have been just as much engaged in the idolatry. They have the same unfaithful heart as their mother. They have learned from their mother and they behave just like she does. They're complicit. They're involved in the false worship. And they have two choices. You can go and contend with your mother. You can repent of this. Or you can join her in judgment. You can join her when God brings this judgment upon the nation. Look at verse 5. For their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has acted shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. This is the harlotry that she's been involved in. He's just explaining it a little bit more. She sought after these other lovers, and he gives the reason she was seeking after these other, other lovers. Why was she going to them? According to verse 5, why is she going after these other lovers? There you go. Notice, she says, I will go after my lovers. 
And by doing so, I will get my bread and my water and my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Who's at the center of this whole thing? Is it Yahweh? It's not even the false gods that she's chasing. The central issue here is her. These are her thoughts. God is providing insight into what she's thinking. Gomer's going to go after all these other lovers because she thinks that these other lovers are providing for her. She thinks that these other lovers are caring for her and giving her what she needs. And she pursues them out of pure self-interest. How can I get what I want? And she falsely believes that these other lovers give to her her daily needs. This is what Israel was doing. Israel was believing that there were other gods that could provide for them. Remember last week we talked, not last week, two weeks ago now, we talked about Israel, the political history of Israel. And Israel, about the time of this writing, was experiencing political and economic success under Jeroboam II. Anybody remember that slightly? Okay, they're going through a great revival. The northern kingdom is prospering politically. They're prospering in their military. They're having great economic success. Their farms are doing really well. And that prosperity is what was fueling her idolatry. Because she believed that it was another god who was providing it to her, a god named Baal. Or, if you say it like most of us, Baal. Either one you want to use. Who is this god of Baal? Anybody know who Baal is? Or Baal? In ancient myths, Baal was depicted as a mighty warrior king. And it was said that he controlled the elements of storms. He can control the wind and the rain. He can make rain fall on your land. Listen to some of the titles he had. Mightiest Baal, Mightiest Warrior, the Lord of the Storm Cloud, Rider of the Clouds. He controlled storms. He controlled the rain and the weather. Now in an agrarian society, a God who can control the weather is a God you want to make sure is happy with you. Because your crops depend upon rain coming. Your livelihood depends upon rain. There was an ancient legend, the legend of Kirtu. K-I-R-T-U. So I could be pronouncing that wrong. Kirtu. Listen to how this legend speaks of Baal. A source of blessing to the earth was the rain of Baal. Rain is precipitation. And to the fields, the rain of the Most High. A delight to the earth was the rain of Baal. And to the fields, the rain of the Most High. They believed this God was the God who would make the rain fall. That it would make their crops grow. And so because Baal controlled all of these factors... They had to appease him. They had to keep him happy. How do you keep Baal happy? Well, sometimes you kept him happy through sacrifices. And sometimes that was grain and 
other things like that, or animals, and sometimes that was human sacrifice. But they could also keep Baal happy by engaging in temple prostitution, physical acts. And you do all this to make Baal happy. And if Baal, Baal is happy, you have prosperity. If Baal is happy, your crops grow and you have a lot of wealth. And if Baal is not happy, you don't have wealth. And life is not so good anymore. One commentator said, Baal would become the primary antagonist to Yahweh for the hearts of the people of Israel. This was their main other God. I didn't say that the right way, but you guys get the idea. And this false worship began as soon as they entered into the promised land. As soon as they get into the promised land, we're already seeing signs of this. Go back to the book of Judges. I need some people who'd like to read. Judges 2, verse 11. And uh, 11 and 13. Who else? Uh, Judges 3, 7. Autumn, did you want to read? Uh, Judges 10, verse 6. And just listen, these verses all speak of Israel going after this false god of Baal. Whenever you're ready. Thank you, sir. Okay, uh, Judges 3, verse 7. There you go. And Judges 10, verse 6. Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sodom, the gods of Moab, the gods of the sons of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines. Thus they forsook the Lord and Thank you. All of this they're doing so they can have prosperity, so that they can have wealth. Even in the divided kingdom, the worship of Baal was their primary besetting sin. We don't have time to go through all these verses, but I'll just give you a couple of them. 1 Kings 16, 31 through 32. 1 Kings 16, 31 through 32. 1 Kings 18, 18. 2 Kings 1, 2 through 6. 2 Kings 3, 2. And there's many others where Israel is chasing after this false god named Baal. They should be going to who for this? They should be going to Yahweh. They should be pursuing after Yahweh. Um... Just so we know, just so we're clear, we do this all the time. This is not something that's unique to the nation of Israel. We have these desires that we want so much, these things that we think we need, and we think we can achieve these things with something or someone other than God. And so instead of pursuing after Christ, like he said, you know, seek after my kingdom and all these things will be added to you. Instead of doing that, we say, well, I'm going to go and make this happen by sinning. 
I'm going to go get what I think I need by rejecting God. It's the same idolatry. You just change the name of your God. And God does intend to respond to this infidelity. He intends to deal with this infidelity. And this brings us to the second point on your handout. Yahweh will stop the harlotry. Yahweh will stop the harlotry. By the way, I I have my slides out of order. That is the God of Baal. That's the image. That's the God of Baal. He's got his, the horns on his head. Yeah. Just thought you might find that interesting. That was actually found in 1932. Okay, second point. I'm back up here. Yahweh will stop the harlotry. Let's look at verse 6. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. This verse you could translate the beginning consequently. As a result of what she's do- <clears throat> excuse me, as a result of what she's doing, here is how God is going to intervene. And he uses very illustrative language. He's going to hedge up her way with thorns. It's going to be really difficult for you to engage in your idolatry. I'm going to make this hard on you. If you want to chase after Baal, it's going to hurt. You have to go through thorn bushes. He says, I will build a wall against her. You're going to have thorns, and then you're going to have to either punch through or climb over walls to get to Baal. I'm going to stop you every way I can. Into verse 6, it's going to work. She cannot find her paths. She can't get back to her other lovers. If you take this in the illustration of Gomer and Hosea, Gomer's not going to be able to find her lovers. She's going to be trapped. She can't go back. She's going to want to go to them, but she won't be able to. But this wall and the thorns that are going to be in her way, merely stopping her from going isn't going to change her desires. It's not going to change what she actually wants. Verse 7, she will pursue her lovers, but she will not overtake them. And she will seek them, but she will not find them. The wall worked. She wasn't able to overtake them. She wasn't able to reach them. She'll be cut off from her lovers. You can cut off access to some kinds of sins. You can block your path back to the sin. But if you don't deal with your heart, if you don't deal with the desires for that sin, you're always going to be pursuing it. The problem with the wall and the thorns is it didn't change Gomer. It didn't change Israel. It just made it impossible for them to physically do what they wanted to do. That's not enough. And you see that here in the end of verse 7. When she says, then she will say, again, we have her response to this, I will go back to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. I'm not getting what I want. 
life is getting hard. I'm not getting all the, the comfort that I want. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go back to my husband. Am I going to go back to my husband because I love my husband and I want to be faithful to him? No, I'm going to go back to my husband because he can give me what I want. Because being with him was better than being where I am now. God prevented Israel from going and worshiping Baal. Their life started getting difficult. And instead of saying, we need to repent, we need to turn our hearts back to God, they said, well, we're going to go back to Yahweh merely so he can give us what we want. It's like the ancient version of the prosperity gospel. This is not a genuine repentance. This is not a genuine turning from sin. It's only seeking after material blessings. There's no desire here for her husband. There's no desire here for God. There's no love. There's no affection. This is merely superficial. Just give me what I want. And we can see that. 2 Kings 17, verses 6 through 23. We don't have time to go through that. 2 Kings 17, 6 through 23. If you read through that, that's at the fall of the northern kingdom. And there's no indication that they have any desire for repentance. There's no indication that they have any desire to actually love Yahweh and serve Him. It's not a genuine repentance because it's not based in a true knowledge of God. This is the acts of ignorance. And I'm not just making that up. She actually believes that her provision is coming from other lovers. She believes that Baal is the one providing to her. This brings us to our third point. Yahweh will stop his provision. He built up a hedge. He put some thorns out there. It kind of worked. And I think this is actually a further explanation of the wall and the thorns, to be honest. Look at verse 8. For she does not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine and the oil, and lavish on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. All of the provision, all of the material prosperity, all of the wealth that they were enjoying came directly from God. Everything Gomer was enjoying was coming directly from Hosea. It was her husband that was providing for her. Verse 8, he says, she does not know. The she here is actually plural. It's referring to all of the people of Israel. And he said, okay, well, if this was ignorance, why does God judge it? If this is just they didn't know, he says, for she does not know. If she doesn't know, why isn't there teaching? Why is there this hard hand of discipline that's coming down on them? If this is just merely ignorance. Because this is not the ignorance of a little child. This is willful ignorance. This is intentional ignorance. Go over to Hosea chapter 4, verse 6. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Because you haven't been taught? Because you have rejected knowledge. I also will reject you from being my priest, from serving me. This is willful, intentional. 
they know better. They're just pretending like they don't know. Have you ever done that? You know it's sin, but you're, you convince yourself otherwise. The Mosaic law clearly said that it is Yahweh who brings material blessing. That it is Yahweh who provides for his people. Deuteronomy 7 verse 13. He will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your new wine and your oil, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock in the land which he swore to your forefathers to give to you. That's Deuteronomy 7, 13. Deuteronomy 11, 13 through 15. Same, same message. They had been told repeatedly, all of these things come from Yahweh. If you are receiving them, it is because Yahweh is giving it to you. Deuteronomy 26, 1 through 11, same message. Their ignorance was intentional. They knew better. But they decided to attribute their prosperity to Baal. Why would someone do this? What happens that makes someone do something this foolish? Because if you're just looking at this from the outside, you're like, why? What, what's the point? Why would someone do this? Any ideas? Everyone else's peer pressure? Yeah. They're focused on what they want? Self-gratification? Okay, it might be easier. They think it's easier. I think this reveals just how deceptive sin is. How could someone whose heart is fixed on Yahweh believe this? To be intentionally ignorant in this way. One commentator said, It is impossible, however, that such a thought can ever occur except in cases where the heart is already estranged from the living God. A heart that's truly in love with God, in love with Yahweh, would never do this. This is a heart that's already captivated by some idol. It's already captivated by something other than God. She didn't recognize the source of her provision, but she did something else. Look at the end of verse 8. Yahweh speaking, And lavish on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. This could be translated, which they made into Baal. God gives them all the silver and gold, and instead of using it to worship Him, instead of using it to glorify Him, they take that same silver and gold, and they turn it into an idol. And they begin to worship the idol as God. Hosea at chapter 8, look at verse 4. They have set up kings, but not by me. They have appointed princes, but I did not know it. With their silver and gold, they have made idols for themselves, that they might be cut off. Hosea 13, verse 2. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves molten images, idols skillfully made from their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. They say of them, let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. Apparently in the worship of Baal, you would go and you would kiss the idol. 
What are these calves? Go back to Hosea 10, verse 5. We discussed this in the very first week. The inhabitants of Samaria will fear for the calf of Beth-Avon. Indeed, his people will mourn for it, and his idolatrous priests will cry over it, over its glory, since it has departed from it. Anybody remember what he's referring to? Remember right after... Yes, yes. Jeroboam I, when the nation first divided, there was two main routes to get down to Israel. One little town was called Dan and one was called Bethel. And he built golden calves and set them up there to stop people from going down to the temple to worship Yahweh. These are the golden calves. And he said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. He used the same phrase out of Exodus 32. That's what he's referring to. These are the golden calves. You can find that story in 1 Kings 12, 28 and 29. Israel took the gifts and the provision that God had given them, and they turned those gifts into a false god named Baal and worshipped those gifts. Have you ever seen someone, God gives them a really nice job, really high-paying job, and they turn that job into an idol, and they use it as an excuse to ignore their family? Same thing. Or they begin to worship the wealth that they start receiving, and money becomes the most important thing to them, and they're willing to do anything to get more of it. Same sin, different God. And what's God's response going to be? Verse 9, Therefore I will take back my grain at harvest time and my new wine in the season. I will take away my wool and my flax given to cover her nakedness. This goes back to verse 5 when she said, My bread, my flax, my wine. And now God turns it around. He says, No, no, no. No, no. It's not yours. It's mine. And he says the exact same phrase. My grain, my new wine, my wool, my flax. I'm going to take it all back. You're not going to have it anymore. Harvest time when you should be enjoying the fruit of your labor. Harvest time when you should be taking in all this prosperity. You're not going to have any. Your land is going to dry up. We're running out of time, so I have to move faster here. Joel 1.10, he gives the same idea. The field is ruined, the land mourns. God removes his provision, he removes his blessings. And those blessings, into verse 9, he says, given to cover her nakedness. Remember earlier we saw, he said, I'm going to make you naked, I'm going to expose you. He's going to expose them by removing his provision. And now they won't be able to lie to themselves and the people around them saying, Baal gave this to me. This brings us to our fourth point. He stops the harlotry. He's going to stop his provision. Yahweh will punish Israel. Yahweh will punish Israel. Look at verse 10. And then I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one will rescue her out of my hand. Lewdness here could be translated as nakedness. Nakedness in the ancient world was considered extremely shameful. If you wanted to humiliate someone, you would uncover their, their nakedness. Uh, 2 Samuel 10, 
David sent some of his servants to the prince of the Amorites, excuse me, the Ammonites, and he sent them there to console the prince because his father had just died. Anybody remember what the prince did? He didn't kill him. Sorry? Yeah. They wear these long gowns. He cut half their beards off and he cut their gowns at the waist. Uncovered their nakedness. And David actually says they were humiliated. They were greatly humiliated. And this humiliation was promised to Israel if she went off into idolatry. Deuteronomy 28, 47 through 48. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and with a glad heart for the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and in lack of all things. They knew what was coming. God promises to strip her naked, to expose her idolatry. And once exposed, there's no one who's going to be able to help cover her. There's no one who's going to be able to deliver her. End of verse 10, and no one will rescue her out of my hand. Her lovers will be silent. They'll have nothing to say for her. There's nothing they'll be able to do for her. But all will be quiet. There's nothing he can do. He will be exposed as being inept. You might say it another way. The mask will come off. She won't be able to hide this anymore and pretend like this is okay. Israel wasn't just guilty of idolatry. She was guilty of hypocrisy. Of pretending to serve Yahweh when she didn't. Look at verse 11. And I will also put an end to all of her gaiety, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her festal assemblies. In the midst of her harlotry, in the midst of her idolatry, and seeking after Baal, you would think she would just completely abandon all the laws and the rules and the festivities of the Mosaic law. But she didn't. She continued to practice those. She engaged in the appointed feasts, the feasts that were appointed in Leviticus 23. And that's what he's talking about here in verse 11. Her feasts, her, her new moons, her Sabbaths, all of her festival assemblies. She was engaging in the external acts of worshiping Yahweh. They were doing all the right things. In modern parlance, you would say, you're coming to church every Sunday. You're participating in all the activities of the church. But there's no genuine heart for God. There's no genuine love of Yahweh. And Yahweh is going to end those activities. He's going to end those festivals. He's going to end their Sabbaths. He actually says an interesting, when he says put an end to the Sabbath... He uses the word, the Hebrew word Shabbat. It's the root of Sabbath. It's also the root of a word that means to put an end to. God is going to put a Sabbath on your Sabbath keeping. It's going to stop. You're not going to do it anymore because it's hypocritical. Verse 12, I will destroy her vines and her fig trees of which she said, these are my wages which my lovers have given me and I will make them a forest and the beasts of the field will devour them. 
Remember, this is an agrarian society. And what he just told them is, I'm going to destroy your livelihood. Your fields, your vineyards, all of those will be destroyed. They won't produce any fruit anymore. You're not going to receive any of the material blessings that you want. Habakkuk 3.17, he gives the same idea. Their agriculture is going to dry up. Notice what she says. These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. The term she, he uses here for wages is the wage of a prostitute. Very graphic, very illustrative. Hosea 9.1, For you have played the harlot, forsaking your God. You have loved harlots, earnings on every threshing floor. These were the wages of a prostitute. That's how she viewed them. Into verse 12, he says, I will make them a forest and the beasts of the field will devour them. I'm going to take the nation of Israel, the land that's been cultivated and turned into farmland, and I'm going to turn it back into the wild land that it was before you got there. Verse 13, I will punish her for the days of the Baals when she used to offer sacrifices to them and adorn herself with her earrings and jewelry and follow her lovers so that she forgot me, declares the Lord. This is the climax of the whole section. This is not a call to repentance anymore. This is divine judgment. Yahweh is going to judge the nation of Israel. This is punishment. Israel started off with syncretism. I've got Yahweh over here, and I'm just going to add Baal to Yahweh. And that was normal in that day. Everybody did that. If you had a God and you found a new God, you would just add that God to your God. That was normal. It was customary. Let's say it another way. Israel was acting like the world. She was behaving in the same way all the nations around her behaved. She was accommodating their practices. This was the pragmatic way to behave. It was easier to accept Baal than to be in conflict with the other nations. And taking on Baal, just like getting insurance. I'm just going to do everything I can to ensure that I get what I want, that I get what I need. And eventually, that turned into full-fledged idolatry. Eventually, it went from, I'm adding Baal to Yahweh, to, I just have Baal. You can't worship a god of the world and Yahweh at the same time. You can't have two gods. You're going to love one and hate the other. And that's where Israel ended up. One commentator said, though devoid of the religious formality of temples and carved idols, the church today often seeks to remain orthodox in its external worship forms while seeking to maintain a comfortable friendship with the world, a friendship that is regarded by the Lord as nothing less than spiritually adulterous enmity with Him. 
People do this today. I'm going to accommodate the world. We're going to make our church service more accepting to the world. And yeah, they have all the outward forms of religion, but they have no real connection to God. No connection to Yahweh. You need to pick one. Which is it going to be? Are you going to worship Yahweh or are you going to worship these other gods? Are you going to be his people or are you going to be the people of the world? Now you get to the end of verse 13 and you might think, well, God's made his case. There's no hope for Israel now. Israel's done. Hosea should just be done with Gomer. Just divorce her, get it over with, be done with it, move on with your life. There's no need for you to suffer anymore. He's been a faithful husband. And that faithfulness and that love has been returned in unfaithfulness. And that's what you're thinking? You're thinking of any other husband other than Yahweh. Hosea now turns. Remember I said he changes his narrative quickly? And now there's another drastic change. The darkness of Israel's infidelity is now contrasted with the brightness of Yahweh's love. And this brings us to our fifth point. Yahweh will allure Israel. He will allure her. Verse 14, he says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her, bring her into the wilderness, and speak kindly to her. You might say it this way, I will seduce her. In, the, in a positive connotation. This faithful husband, who's been slighted, betrayed, and humiliated by his unfaithful wife, now says, I'm going to woo her again. I'm going to attract her back. I'm going to persuade her. Come into the wilderness with me. He says, I will speak kindly to her. I will speak words of comfort and kindness. Literally in the Hebrew, I'm going to speak to her heart. I'm going to tell her things that I know will bring her comfort and peace. It's like the husband sees his wife crying and he puts his arm around her and begins telling her things that he know will bring her comfort and peace and help her deal with whatever is going on until he starts seeing her smile again. He's going to soothe her grief. And what are some of the things that Yahweh is going to say to her? What are the comforting words that he has for her? Verse 15. Then I will give her her vineyards from there, and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came up from the land of Egypt. All of the judgments that we just read about in 2 through 13, all of these are going to be reversed. They're all going to be turned around. Israel will be returned back to her land. She would be scattered when Israel fell, and then she will be returned back to the promised land. Anybody remember the Valley of Acre? Anybody know what happened there? I told you, Jose knows his Bible. He knows his geography, too. The Valley of Acre is where Achan sinned. Remember Achan went in and took the forbidden treasure? It's actually mentioned there. I think that's in Joshua 7. Yeah. 7, 24 through 26. And he says, There in the valley of Achor, when you return, you will sing as in the days of her youth. When they came out of Egypt, all the worship that they were doing in their first couple of days on the trek, 
this place of trouble, the Valley of Achor, will now be a place where they experience blessing and peace. And they will sing and they will worship Yahweh. Verse 16, it will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ishi and will no longer call me Baali. That day refers to the day of the Lord. This is in the future when the Messiah returns. On that day, you will call Yahweh Ishi. Anybody know what Ishi means? Who has a reference Bible? My husband, yeah. Israel's not going to look to her lovers anymore. She's going to turn back to Yahweh and say, you are my husband. And you will no longer call me Baali. Baali is my Baal. They were actually referring to Yahweh as Baal. They'll have a new relationship with, with Yahweh. Israel will commit herself fully and exclusively to Yahweh. Notice verse 17. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth so that they will be mentioned by their names no more. Israel will be done with the idolatry. Baal will be finished. All the false worship will go away. He's going to reverse all of the judgments he's announced. This is going to be a full restoration. Verse 18, In that day I will also make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and will make them lie down in safety. Has this happened yet? Has God abolished war? Are they living in peace in Israel? This couldn't have happened yet. This is a promise yet to be fulfilled. I'm going to abolish the bow. I'm going to get rid of all war. In 1.5, he promised to break the bow. That is to break their military might. Here he's not saying I'm going to break the bow. I'm just going to get rid of it. You're not going to need a military anymore. They're going to have true human peace. They're going to lie down in safety. Okay. But surely somewhere Israel did something to earn this, right? You notice how between verses 13 and 14, there's no mention of repentance. There's no mention of good works. There's no mention of rituals and sacrifices that they did to appease God. From 14 to the end of the chapter, there's no mention of Israel doing anything to earn this. This is unilateral, unconditional restoration for the nation of Israel. Yeah. Salvation by grace alone. Despite their sin, in the wake of their sin, Yahweh turns back to his unfaithful bride and says, I'm going to love you. I'm going to care for you. Verse 19 and 20. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion, and I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. Then you will know Yahweh. Each line here in the Hebrew begins with the same phrase. I will betroth you. And the term he uses for betrothed refers to what you would do with a young, unmarried woman who's never been married before. 
He's going to treat her as though they were never married. As though she had never turned away to her other lovers. Total, complete forgiveness, like it never happened. He says, I will take you as my wife. This is not a conditional thing. I'll take you as my wife if you promise to do no. God promises to marry her, to love her, to show her loving kindness and compassion. Despite all of her sin, despite all of her failures. That brings us to our last point. Yahweh will have compassion. Verse 21 and 22, he says, It will come about in that day that I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the heavens and they will respond to the earth and the earth will respond to to the grain, to the new wine, to the oil, and they will respond to Jezreel. Yahweh's compassion to Israel is depicted as a response. God is said to respond to the heavens. That is to say, God's going to make the heavens pour down rain. And the earth is going to respond to the rain. It's going to produce new grain and new wine, new oil. And then he says, they will respond to Jezreel. Jezreel is the name of Hosea's first child. The name here actually refers to sowing or scattering seed. Israel would be scattered when the nation fell to Assyria. Here he reverses that and says, you're going to be scattered or sowed back into the promised land, back into the land that God gave you. And if you think that's just linguistics and someone's just playing around with words, just look at what he says right after that. I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. I'm going to sow you back in the land. The judgment will be reversed. You will keep the land you were given. God depicts the children here as being fully restored. Jezreel, the very first child, is restored at the end of verse 22 and the beginning of verse 23. Lo, Ruhamah, no compassion. The second child is restored. She will receive compassion. And the third child, Lo, Ami, not my people, will once again be called my people. Full restoration. Everything taken care of. Like I said, these promises aren't going to be fulfilled today. They're certainly not living these promises out right now with rockets flying over their heads. These are going to be fulfilled in the millennial reign. What did Israel do to deserve this? Nothing. Nowhere in the Old Testament do you find any mention that Israel deserves this. You find the exact opposite. They don't deserve it. These are unconditional promises made by God to his people. Undeserved and unmerited. Anybody know where these verses are quoted again? These verses at the end of this chapter are quoted somewhere else. Revelation? No. It does start with an R though. Romans. Yeah, flip over to Romans 9. 
The Apostle Paul quotes this. Let's start in verse 23. He speaks of our being saved. Romans 9.23 And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. Just like Israel was fully restored to God after her sin, after her unfaithfulness, so too you and I do not deserve the blessings we receive. The salvation that you have been given. Uh, 1 Peter 2. I'm sorry. Yeah, 1 Peter 2. Verses 9 and 10. Peter also says this. He alludes to it. 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may... Proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness, marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Just like Israel. Unmerited, undeserved, unconditional. God makes promises to you. Those promises are made to you through the new covenant, through the Messiah. They are dependent upon his faithfulness, not yours. Israel can no more lose her promises than you could lose the promises God has made to you. Any questions? Comments? Stunned into silence. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you can go to the first, the first half of Hosea 2, and it's everybody in this room. In the second half, Paul points to that and says, same salvation. Salvation in the Old Testament was by grace alone to undeserving people who could never merit it for themselves. Yeah, her question is, where does repentance fall in? Because obviously in the New Testament it says you need to repent, right? Repentance is a part of... Repentance comes with salvation. So faith is given as a gift. And the way faith behaves is it repents. Um, Israel, when you go through and you look at when the Messiah returns, uh, it says they will look on him who, who has been pierced and they will mourn for him as an only child. So there will be repentance. But I think he leaves that out merely to show this isn't based on their repentance. God's promises aren't the result of, oh, you repented now? Okay, now I'll... I'll pro He's doing that just to show this is all of grace. That's a good question. Yes? Good. 
And he was saying, and they will say, which is evidence of repentance. It's a fruit of repentance. So they had a change of mind and a change of behavior. All right, well, if you have any questions, feel free to see me. We're actually 10.01, so we need to end it here. Let me pray, and we'll, we'll get going. Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you that you are a faithful God, that you are compassionate to us, even though we don't deserve it. We can never earn it. And you've demonstrated that mercy and compassion through the nation of Israel, through uh, your dealings with Hosea. So we just ask that you would help to keep our minds focused on you, to not be tempted and drawn away from you to the things of this world or to other false gods, but that we would keep our heart solely devoted to you and to Christ, and that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.